You're listening to the Tellable Truths Podcast. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow the blog. Today, we're jumping into a discussion on coronavirus and God's judgment, hosted by David Lewis on his podcast, Apologetics from the Attic. Make sure to check it out. We're going to be interviewing somebody, Zach Turbus is his name, and he has a website, tellabletruths.com, and he had posted a blog post that he did that I thought was very well written and, and, and deserved a, a showing on here because I think that it was, it, was, it was very well done, and it was entitled, What Does America Need? And I wanted to bring him on here to talk about it today, so we're going to bring Zach on. Hey, Zach. Hey, how's it going? Hey, welcome. Good, man. Welcome. Welcome. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, um, you know, your background and what got got you into um, apologetics and writing and staking your claim in this area. Yeah. Um, So how I sort of came to the faith was I played college baseball and I went to a Wesleyan school uh, to finish up my four years after playing Mm -hmm. at a JUCO. And part of the requirements for graduation was you had to take a class called Faith and Reason. And yep. um, I was introduced to the likes of like Ravi Zacharias and some other apologists, Gary Habermas and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, so you're saying this is real <laughs> kind of yeah. thing, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so I, that was when, you know, I first started really actually just taking it seriously. And then, but it wasn't until um, I got married, moved to Omaha and got involved in, in a, uh, a church down here. And in a men's group, somebody's like, well, have you ever read the Bible? You know, and I was like, you know what? I've been calling myself a Christian for darn near ever. And I've never read the Bible. So yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they had yeah, free yeah. ones. And I just picked it up and, and started reading it. And sort of at the end, I was like, okay, yeah, I wasn't a Christian, but I believe it now. You know, but then like shortly after that, you, you asked how I, I got involved in apologetics. So yeah. Um, you know, I sort of just binge listened to guys like R.C. Sproul and Robbie Zacharias and mm-hmm. um, sort of I tell people my my black eye into the reform faith was uh, Mark Driscoll. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I I, <laughs> um, I really you know what? He was not a bad teacher, though. Um, no, Driscoll was good, man. Yeah. Failings, you know, yeah, Driscoll, yeah, Driscoll in his prime, man, was good. I mean, I, yeah. I enjoyed listening to him. Yeah. So from there, kind of moved to James White, moved to, um, was really sort of impacted by uh, Jeff Durbin and how he was sort of out uh, engaging with people just one-on-one and and having those conversations. I think the first video I saw was was him basically just talking to a couple Mormons on bikes, you know, and it was the first time I'd I'd seen somebody engage like that and actually have um, so much respect for the other person while still disagreeing with them pretty good. And that's helped me sort of in my conversations at work, you know, um, 
sort of wherever I am in evangelistic encounters. Uh, I remember that. Um, so yeah. just influenced by sort of that group and uh, how I got into writing was basically I had a back and forth with uh, a doctor friend of mine on email. And at the end of it, he basically was like, I think you missed your calling. I think you should have been a writer. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't long after that, that I was like, well, maybe I'll start it, you know? And so I started writing and kind of have a humble blog over there and we're starting a podcast here. So yeah, cool, man. My, my yeah yeah so tellabletruth.com is the website if you want to check it out um and um yeah i mean it's it's interesting too i mean i our generation you know i'm in i'm 38 um but i was shaped so deeply by being able to access stuff online and listen to stuff you know Mm -hmm. um i i can't tell you um, I, I bet you, I got you beat on listening to James White. There's very <laughs> you few, do. you I know, I have like literally thousands of hours. I've probably listened to every dividing line and I can um, only then, handle so many three hour. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would, I, I don't know if you remember, this is years ago. He, they, they don't have, they used to have this way back machine. They called it on his website where you, they had oh, every yeah. dividing line from like 94 in a continuous loop. Yeah. I actually, and I remember. Yeah, I've referenced I, the the old Alpha and Omega way more than the new new set. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and so and then Paul Washer, John Piper, R.C. Mm-hmm. Sproul, yep. MacArthur. You know, um, you know, just and it's interesting that now this us younger guys, a lot of us, uh, there's a pretty big community of younger yeah. reform guys doing putting out mm-hmm. content online, uh, doing podcasts, doing blogging and stuff. So it's pretty cool to see the next generation step up and and yep. do this stuff yep. so yeah let's let's jump into your article here because you know we're trying to understand the the coronavirus and its impact on our culture and on the church and on our society and what god's saying um so let me pull this up here so here's uh if you're watching here's the uh and you know it, you know it, the eye-catching uh picture of donald trump there <laughs> that's my clickbait <laughs> uh, yeah that's, you, got, you gotta have that clickbait on there uh, you know, yeah. it's and, and the entitled is What Does America Need? And you posted it on, on the 18th of April. So COVID-19 and its aftermath are very likely, if not assuredly, judgment from God. So that's kind of how you open the article. So why don't you talk about that? Because that is what people are talking about. So the premise I had was basically just normal for us was pretty rotten. Just looking at the state of the family, um, the state of the church, the scourge of abortion. Any Christian with any type of conscience and regular interaction with God's word should be able to look at our culture and just, you know, want to put their forehead on the floor because we have so strayed from the precepts of God. But we would have just kept going on business as usual unless God did something like this. Um, And I'm not saying that anything's changing. You know, I I certainly hope, hope that things change. I hope that people repent. But as one who's tried to get involved in abortion ministry, uh, ministry to the the mothers at the abortion mill, yeah. um, and trying to get other Christians involved in that, other churches to stand up for the unborn, to give their voice to the voiceless, to hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter, and just basically being discouraged at what I perceive as a lack of courage and biblical faithfulness on the part of the church to do what God's commanded and called us to do. And sort of lamenting over that, you know, a lot of the answers I would get was, we just don't talk to political stuff, you know, and um, I just think like, man, how can you look at something like abortion and just call it something political? 
you know, as just something merely political. It may be political. It is political in our day and age, but that just really ate at me. And coming from somebody who, you know, didn't always hold the views that I have on abortion, um, just coming into contact with God's word and, and, uh, letting that uh, sort of renew my mind. I, I'm sure that part of the reason that I held the views I held is because I just wasn't confronted with the truth by by people who knew any better. And so I think that, you know, and that's just one one of many issues. I think that you could say the same thing about foster care, just the family in general, how we've sort of cheapened and profaned marriage in our culture. Uh, so there's a laundry list of things that we need to repent of, but without any sort of life-altering, um, I, man, I forget the quote. It's a C.S. Lewis quote, I think. But he's, um, he, he whispers, he shouts in our pain, he whispers in our pleasure yeah. or whatever yeah. Like that, yeah at least something of that sort yeah I well mean, let me let me get well, yeah. well let me read so let me give our, our audience a taste of uh, uh zach's he, he he writes very well so here's here's the one quote what you're talking about it says for a country such as ours steeped in decadence rife with every kind of sexual corruption seeing no problem with thievery from future generations and one that sits idly by while nearly a million children per year are poisoned and butchered in the womb of the person who is supposed to love them most judgment is not just possible but long overdue so there you go and i think too you made a good point you know that it, well that's just a political issue um i think that people you know with agendas have successfully made it and i think the big evangelical mega churches have been complicit in this that you know we have uh made this divide between public policy and private spirituality Mm -hmm. which is what a secular culture does, right? I mean, Albert Muller talks about this all the time. A secular yeah. culture wants to push the church into saying, well, you can have all these beliefs as long as they're private, yep. as long as they don't come into the public square, as long yep. as they don't come into the arena. And then Christians feel like, you know, like, yeah, that's a dirty word. Oh, you shouldn't be political. Mm -hmm. You're a Christian. You should just have a private spirituality that doesn't really uh, impact anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that that's something that's, silence the church and i think we're also tempted in this in this situation to uh to not you know to not speak up mm -hmm. and say you know because we'll be we'll be tarred and feathered as one of those people who puts on a sign and walks down the middle of the street and it has flames on it and it says repent or go to hell mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like that oh yeah that's what the christians do they walk around and you know say repent or go to hell mm -hmm. um, and we're afraid of being labeled that way right Yep. Yeah. And if I can interject just a little bit there, yeah. um, the, I think it's interesting how the place where I work, we actually have people on staff who are ethicists. Yeah. And uh, so I sit back and I'm like, does that mean you're Christian or like, hey, like what, what are you standing on to be able to yep. make these moral pronouncements? And I think it's an interesting place where all the, the world is uh, basically confronted every day with ethical decisions, uh, but they have no moral foundation from which to, um, judge which ones are right and which ones are wrong you know and this is that's a place where again christians can step up and and be of help um, because we have access to god and his word and we're just we're missing opportunities to cure people of of the disease that will touch us all you know which is obviously sin and death so yeah 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 and i i agree and i think that you know I think that even the founding fathers of our country, even though they may not have been evangelical Christians, all of them, mm -hmm. they still would affirm that the moral framework of the Bible 
in the Christian worldview is what you need. Yep. Um, and they, they were kind of like running off of fumes propelling forward of the Christian worldview that was the society was soaked in at the time. Yeah. And, I think but, I, but I think our society now, you know, you, you might have people who, you know, make ethical pronouncements mm-hmm. and they're doing it based on the Christian worldview and they don't realize it. But, yep. um, you know, I don't think that people realize that they're probably uh, the foundation they're standing on is very thin mm-hmm. and can easily be um, kicked out from under them if they don't have yeah. a Christian worldview. And, you know, when people agree with you, like people ag- agree that, you know, the, the value of, of human life, that'll come up in, in all of our conversations over the next month or two. You yeah. know, are we going to, are we going to ask them basically what makes life valuable? You know, yeah. how, are we going to push that on them to try and explain, you know, why life is valuable? Um, because, you know, there's really only one answer to that question. So, yeah. So let's, um, so the judgment from God thing. Mm-hmm. So, um. We have no direct revelation from God that COVID-19 and his aftermath is judgment from God, but we do have direct revelation that gives us an idea of the character of God, what he hates, what pleases him. And we have the ability to observe our culture and measure it by the word of God and judge how likely it is that we are walking through a time of God's judgment. So, yeah, I mean, let's let's talk through that a little bit because um, I think that the only people that are saying it's the judgment of God can tend to be people who um, otherwise, you know, might, may have some wacky theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how do we, how do we responsibly say that we're not, I mean, you, you remember Pat Robertson who would say stuff like hurricane Katrina is a judgment on new Orleans. And mm-hmm. God's basically telling him that directly or the yeah, earthquake yeah. in Haiti. Remember that one? It was because yeah. they practice voodoo and they make made a deal with the devil. So yeah. how do how do we how do we say that it's judgment from God? And you're kind of doing it in that thing I just read, but I'd like you to explain that. How do we say that it's the judgment of God without coming across like we're Old Testament prophets and we believe yeah. that we have direct evidence of why God's doing this? Yeah. So I believe that uh, the way we have to look at this is just based on inference. So inference is basically gathering information and and drawing conclusions about the information that you've gathered. And one of the data points or the data points that that we're aware of are basically um, what the Bible says and then what our culture's like. And so you're basically looking at those two things and you're saying, okay, what does the Bible say about judgment? And you're walking through scripture, you know, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, Israel. If you're reading the Bible and you don't take from it that God cares about his creation and he does so, so much that he is going to step in and judge those who are destroying it, right? That is a constant theme in the Bible, that when humans go astray and they start perverting his good creation, he steps in and he he rectifies the situation. The Canaanites, this is a constant apologetic discussion that people have, you know, where they say, well, your God committed genocide. And you say, were you even reading it? Because the Bible says that these people were practicing child sacrifice, much like mm-hmm. we're doing today. They were perverting themselves and everyone else in that culture, you know, time and time again. And that's the reason that God gives for giving the land to the Israelites and basically saying, hey, look, you are going to basically go and judge this, this wicked people. 
And as Reformed Christians, we want to make sure that we we don't fall into like the Marcionite heresy where we say that the God of the Old Testament is this way, right? Yep. But, uh, you know, judgment, fire, wrath, all that. And then the God of the New Testament is is all love, ooey gooey stuff, yep. right? We can basically say that, you know, God, look, God doesn't change. And uh, when iniquity is in the earth, he has the prerogative and the motivation to step in and uh, again, rectify that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, here, here's a, here's a quote, you know, from your, from your article, no survey of biblical history is complete without copious reference to these low points in man's affairs. When God intervened to judge mankind for rebellion, he sank the earth in the days of Noah, destroyed Sodom for the, their lasciviousness, devastated Egypt for Pharaoh's hard heart, arrested Canaan for their satanic practices, and even subjected his own chosen people, Israel to violence, drought, pestilence, and banishment because of their inability not to sin. So that's a, that's a good quote. Cause I, yeah, I agree with you. Now I want to, I want to try to, let me try this real quick. I want to get your opinion on this. Ben Shapiro, he pointed me to this CDC website, but um, it's death counts. And he mm -hmm. was using, and he was using this as like, you know, show like how few people in certain age groups die from COVID-19 and comparing it to the general thing. And, and so a lot of people are now talking about the number of people that die every day. Yeah. And, and I've been saying that I've been talking about this for a decade. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I've had sermons where I will tell people, do you know 250,000 people a day die on planet earth? You know, like, and that's a, a massive number. Yeah. So, so here's my thing with this. Even, even if, you know, you don't want to go so far as to say, well, I, I have a hard time saying that this specific virus, which is a global pandemic and is killing people is an act of God. Okay, Fine. I mean, I think that God is sovereign and, and he's in control of everything. Like R.C. Sproul said, there's no, you know, there's no uh, maverick molecule in the universe there's no maverick coronavirus like yeah. there's no coronavirus floating around that god's going oh i don't want that there i mean he's sovereign but even if you set that aside this discussion shouldn't so there's this first column which is how many people died from coronavirus but what about the se the second column is deaths from all causes mm -hmm. since april 17th or no this is from february 1st to april 17th okay look at this you know so only so let's go age 55 to 64 right 1773 people died of coronavirus okay but 73000 died of all other causes from february 1st till april 17th so th i guess this is what i want to hear your insight on and i think you would agree with me the real judgment of god is death however it comes about I think we as a culture and we as a church have not talked about death enough just in general. Now, now it's being forced in our face, right? Now, all, mm -hmm. all over the news, we're hearing death rates and how many people are dying. And But that was going on way before the coronavirus, okay? Yeah. The, the, you know, tens of thousands of people a day dying in the United States of America, hundreds of thousands dying worldwide. And from a Christian worldview, that is the judgment of God. I mean, I don't care what your theology is. I don't care if you're a charismatic or not, or you like to talk about pronouncing judgments, which a lot of Christians just don't like to do that. So whatever. Yeah. But certainly this is the judgment of God, isn't it? That, that people are dying because of the curse of sin. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Ju death is 
the judgment of God ultimately. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think that, so I, I've sort of fallen back on Amos 3, uh, 3, 6, where it says, you know, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it, mm. you know? And uh, I want to talk about something here real quick. Let me see sure. if I can pull it up. Okay. Yeah. So uh, in my article, we'll probably get to it a little bit later, but I sort of use Job as a grid for sure. us to understand judgment. Because that, they're talking about judgment right and left in Job. Um, Job's getting accused by his quote-unquote friends of basically harboring secret sins that they assume he's being judged for. And yeah, um, yeah. their encouragement to Job is basically to come clean to God, to repent, yeah. and then all will be better. And that's a constant theme. But, you know, we have testimony from God, of all people, to... Uh, Job's blamelessness, basically, and the distinction I make is the difference between blameless and sinless is uh, the difference between, you know, being forgiven of your sins, you know, while still having them and being sinful, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that the testimony in Job was clear that Job was not being punished for his sins, that there was an, a greater purpose at hand, right? Yeah. Um, now, one of the things that I like to point out is that all of Job's friends were basically pointing, at least in the beginning, heavily at it's it's some sort of judgment based on sins that are basically hidden, right? And why do they have to say that? Because there's nothing in Job's life that they can point to to say, this is why Job, God is judging you. It's, it's not like they could have said, hey, Job, remember that time you slept with Bildad's wife? You know, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. why, that's why. God is judging you or, Hey, Job, remember how you've been cheater in all of your dealings? That's why God is judging you. They basically had to fall back on saying, well, Job, there's, it's gotta be something, right? Because, uh, we know that, that God is just, and here we are. But my, my whole point in the article was like, could we say the same about us though, as a people? So not as an individual person, but as a people, is there, are there indictments that could reasonably be charged against us because there wasn't for Job? Right. And I think that, again, we're deluded if we can look at the current state of our culture and call ourselves blameless. Right. <laughs> if we can look at the state of our culture and say, there's really no reason for God to judge us. So obviously, COVID 19 is not a judgment. Um, I think we're just off our rocker. Yeah. You know, um, so that that's my point. Uh, but then using that grid, that framework saying like, you know, in Job's life, you know, they were calling it a judgment from God, even though there was no nothing in Job's life, um, particularly that they could point to that would really require judgment as God has shown that he has judged people in the past. But in our situation, there definitely is. But what does that mean for, are you familiar with like John Barrows? No. So he uh, he's a sidewalk counselor. He's at an abortion mill in Florida like every day, okay. you know, uh, whether it's raining, hot, whatever. And he's been a big encouragement to me. And when I look at faithful Christians, faithful men doing what they need to do, I think of John Barrows. And so if John Barrows gets COVID-19 and dies, is on a ventilator, horrible death, is somebody really going to pop up and say, see, John, you're getting judged for X, Y, and Z? No. Right. And I think that that is far more akin to Job's situation than our culture as a whole. Right. So I think that the story of Job really helped me understand a lot of how we should view judgment. But let me read this and I'll get your thoughts on this. So sure. 
I say, this is point eight of the notes that I sent you. Okay. It says, everyone lives their lives under the umbrella of God's common grace. And where Job's friends go wrong is when they confuse how God has shown he normally deals with mankind temporally, that is God's relative methods of bringing justice to bear on a society without punishing all sin exhaustively. And they're, so they're confusing that with God's ultimate justice, where, yeah. no, where no deed will go unpunished. So their view of God is all justice and no grace, all hell and no cross. Job agrees with them regarding their assertions that God is just, but has been living a faithful life in the warmth of God's grace, and, and he can't ascertain for the life of him where that warmth has gone. It says that he would wake up and offer sacrifices for his children, and that was pleasing to God. God tells us that he was pleased with Job, so we can infer that Job was a faithful, blood-bought yeah. Christian, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so prioritizing God's agenda, taking risks and learning humility, um, we need all of that to be in Job's shoes. But yeah, I just think that like every deed will get punished mm -hmm. in the in the final judgment. But but God has shown that his kindness, his patience is supposed to lead us to repentance. Yeah. And he will be patient with our sins for a time. But that's all his prerogative. Nothing's binding his hands to hold off his judgment at any time from us. So like when COVID-19 comes to us, I don't think that it's wrong then to say, yes, this is judgment. You know, like anything wrong that happens is just of God to do. It was only his patience that was holding it back. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. And I agree. And I think that, you know, first of all, well, there's a couple of things, points you're making, I think are good. Number one, we, we don't want to come across like Job's friends. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to go up to individuals and say, well, you know, your um your grandmother got COVID nineteen obviously because you have some secret sin that God's judging you for or yes. she has some secret sin you know that's mm -hmm. just inappropriate because we don't know that which charismatics or, would probably do right? yeah I mean, yeah or or you don't have enough faith you know yeah. you didn't you know you didn't I mean this I mean uh, the reckoning for the prosperity preachers and charismatic churches that this oh, is yeah. providing is is good a good a good cleansing agent for the body of christ i can tell you that yes because uh, yep. you know the force field of faith that you should create around yourself to protect yourself from COVID 19 that's that's yep. kind of why aren't you guys at the hospitals type yeah, of thing yeah why aren't you praying for everybody and, and bringing healing to them so i yep. agree with that uh, i agree with you that we shouldn't be like joe's friends i also think that what we should as pastors be saying to individuals is this is between you and God where you come down on this as far as your own personal sin, but we're all sinners and God always uses stuff like this to expose your sin. So it's, so it's not a direct correlation to mm -hmm. a specific sin, like some cosmic retribution. However, this should be bringing your sin to the surface. Yep. Either your idolatry, your materialism, your impatience, your desire to control everything in life, you know. So, mm -hmm. I mean, because that's where I want to start. I want to start because I get tempted to want to be this national spokesman for, you know, whatever. Yep. <laughs> and forget, wait a minute, I have a, a family, I have a church, I have, you know, people that need pastoral care. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to be a national spokesman at that moment. You know, I yep. need to be a, have, you know, be able to gently show someone that um a pandemic whatever suffering you're going through because because that, right that's the, the end of the book of jo the book of joe bottom line is uh, it all swirls about 
just to get to the final conclusion where Job basically says, just where's the punchline in Job? Job's confessions. I know that you can do all things. So this is after it's all said and done and God rebukes Job. He says, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So that's a, that's a confession Job makes like no purpose of yours can be thwarted, Lord. If you want to bring down the, the, you know, if you want to take my life and take my children and take everything, you can do that. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Yep. So ultimately, this should lead to repentance for yep. all of us. And you're right. It's a God could judge us in much harsher ways. Mm-hmm. Like if he was just with us, this is child's play yep. compared to what he should be reigning. And you make that point in the article. God, mm -hmm. this, is, this is nothing compared to what we deserve from yep. the hand of a holy God for our sin. Now, when you get into talking about God's judgment on the nation, we, we got to be very careful yeah. because if you go full-blown theonomy, yeah. I didn't read that article yet. You had an article on theonomy there. In your, you know, and and if we go full blown theonomy, mm -hmm. then we we will say, well, listen, this is a direct gut judgment on God from mm -hmm. God, like in a direct, like way, because we're disobeying His law as a nation, and God judges nations for disobedience to His law, um, mm -hmm. you know, and and it's a judgment. So, what can you speak on that? Yeah, society? I think that those are definitely good good questions that you bring up. So, yeah. uh, so Ethan, uh, my co-editor, he's the one that wrote the one on theonomy, and, okay. and he'll definitely like he's he's there. He he argues for it well. He's actually, you know, I would consider myself basically like a, a soft theonomist. I don't mm -hmm. know as as theonomist as maybe like Douglas Wilson gets or something like that. Yeah, sure. To where I just don't see a philosophical grounding for things like natural law. You know, I, I believe that if you're going to have a society and base a society, basically make laws for that society, that you have to use a standard by which to judge which laws are mm -hmm. better than other laws and what punishments are better than other punishments. And, you know, I've been slowly pleased with a lot of the things that Ethan has said. He makes a lot of sense in ways that I haven't heard other theonomists make a lot of sense. And I'm not sure of a lot of the distinction between like covenanters and theonomists and stuff like that. So I won't delve too too far into that, but I sort of like to, so I won't draw, draw those straight lines. God is judging us um, for X, Y, and Z, and yeah. I'm giving it to you just like uh, with the same certainty that I'm just reading a passage right out of the Bible, yeah. you know, or like the charismatics, like I have a direct line from God. I'm not yeah. willing to go that far and say, God is judging us for X, Y, and Z, and I know it for certain, yeah. right? Um, but what I want to do is sort of bring to bear the caution that we should all observe um, based on everything uh, that we've seen God has done in the past, right, and apply it to our own situations now. I think I make the point in the article that I'm not sure that repenting would relent 
this from God. Like, mm. like um, I, I say that we are we are Nineveh, right? We have no promise from God that should we repent, should we um, straighten ourselves up with regards to the family, should we um, start preaching the gospel to all people and um, shepherding our church as well? Should we, you know, get rid of abortion? Should we basically do everything that that the church is has meant to do? I'm still not saying that that there's some sort of you know divine promise that if you do some these things that you will be blessed, right? What I'm saying is that we should repent regardless because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Second, it's like it's not Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Yeah. Like, you know, like there's this direct promise if you know you turn from your wicked ways, then I'll heal your land. Yep. You know, yeah. I make the point. So my favorite line in in the whole article. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, yeah, because you, you do say that you talk about Nineveh had no promise from God that He would relent from utterly destroying them, but they turn from their wickedness anyway. We are Nineveh. We have no promise that things will get better, but that doesn't matter one bit. We need to repent. Yeah. So right after that, I said we need to repent. But then this is my favorite paragraph in the whole one. It says, "Let us turn to God. Let us lean into Him on Him." And if we are bound to fall, let us fall in his direction with arms stretched out, reaching for his blessing, clawing for his forgiveness, not for fear of further strife, but in grief over our former selves. Anything that gets us doing that, I don't care how excruciating it seems at the time, is conspicuous and abundant mercy. Mm. So my point in, in this whole article, that, that was sort of the focal point, the um, the high point of this article, in my view, yeah. was for us to come to the point where we don't repent merely because we're upset with COVID-19 and we don't repent merely because we lost our job and we don't repent merely because, you know, the, the prospects are that we could be Venezuela, right? We repent because we're thoroughly unimpressed, grieving over the way we used to be, right? Yeah. And um, it like, in saying all these things, I want to make sure that I also say that repenting, you know, turning from evil, doing good doesn't save anyone, but it's, you know, crying out to God for forgiveness, being washed in the blood of Christ, forgiven of all your sins that can put you in that frame of mind to begin with. Mm -hmm. And that's the other point that I wanted to make in this article was that Job in all of this, I think that in, in chapter nine, just after Bildad basically scolds Job for, you know, harboring these secret sins and actually also supposing that, that Job's children were harboring sins and that's why they got destroyed as well. Job basically says like, look, I agree with you that God is just, but I have a complaint to register with him because I don't think that I'm being punished for any sin that I've done. In fact, like I'm pretty sure of it. I think right before that in chapter eight, he says something to the effect of like, don't I have a palate to judge whether I've sinned against God or not? So he has this complaint. He feels it's a righteous complaint, but then sort of at the end of chapter nine or going into the end of chapter nine, he starts saying, basically, I do want to go and approach God and talk mm -hmm. to him about all this struggle. However, I don't feel like I can. Right. And his reason for not feeling like he can approach God was his infirmity. Job knew he was a sinner. He knew that he was everything that he said at the end of the book, where all by himself, alone and by himself, 
Job knows that he is a sinner, not worthy to be in God's presence, right? Yeah. Um, but he has a serious and uh, what he considers a righteous complaint that he wants to register before God. And so he concludes that a mediator is necessary. He says, if there was somebody that could put his hand on God and his hand on me, that I wouldn't have to fear the rod of God, that I would be able to approach him then I would be able to register my complaint. Then I would speak openly without fear, mm. right? And I'm saying that if if that's Job, right, and righteous Job, blameless Job, would still have a fear of approaching God on his own, but he would request a mediator, then how much more do we, with debauchery running through our veins, require a mediator, mm. right? Um, how much more do we, as a people who have proven not to be in the place of Job, how do how much more do we then need that mediator? Mm. And we, of course, know with you know the advent of Christ, with God uh, incarnating in the person of Jesus Christ and dying for our sins, we have that access now. We have that person who is going to put his hand on God and us and make communication possible. And that's what we need as as a, a nation. The whole point of the article, what does America need, is for people to immediately run to the article going like, oh, I saw Donald Trump. I'm sure that, you know, I, I think in some places where I've posted this, I posted like the solution that nobody's talking about, right? Yeah. And of course, this is all just my my weaseling ways to get people to, <laughs> um, to read what I'm saying, right? Yeah. But the point is, is not that our repenting will fix the problem. The point is that we should repent. And the only way to do that properly is to go to the Savior that God has provided. And so that that's basically, I mean, I talked for a long time, but th that's good. those are my thoughts, you know. Thanks for listening to part one on this discussion between me and David. Check back next week where we talk about the role of government in America and Romans 13. Please like our page on Facebook. And if you've benefited from our content, please consider giving a gift to New Day Orphanage Zambia at newdayorphanage.org. That's it. And don't forget to tell the truth.